This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 33 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined by another awesome guest. He is an iOS developer at Shipstead, the creator of developer tools such as Swift Format, and the author of the iOS Core Animation Advanced Techniques book. It's Nick Lockwood. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a true pleasure to have you on. I think we started talking about having you on the show like in March or something like that, and now it's finally kind of happening. <laughs> So uh, we just met last week at the FrenchKit conference in Paris, uh, where you gave a really great talk about building a compiler in Swift, which was really fascinating. So uh, it's kind of obvious from looking at your work that you are very passionate about like parsing code and analyzing code and things like that. So I'm curious to hear kind of what got you started with that? Like, what is it about parsing code that kind of excites you? I think I like... It's kind of like the uh, the next level down from programming, right? So once you've uh, once you've kind of I wouldn't say mastered programming, but once you've kind of like had your fill of programming, the next the next level is to sort of like start thinking about building your own programming languages, I guess. So that's I think that's kind of how I got into it. Um, once I'd been programming for a few years, I sort of got really interested in like you know what makes a good programming language, uh, like how all of this stuff sort of works under the hood. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, like uh, after you've been using tools for a, for a, a long time, you you start to get a feel for like what's a good tool and how, how maybe you could have a better tool. And so I think I think that's kind of what got me into it. It was like I, I wanted to make make my own programming language, make make my own tools that were better than the tools that I had to work with. Yeah, exactly. After a while, you're like you're starting to see some of the flaws, and you you start thinking maybe I can have a crack at this. Maybe I could you know try to solve these problems in a different way. Right, and of course, and I mean it's hugely impractical because. You know, like building a programming language is a is a lot more than just you know the process of actually building the parser and building the compiler, which is itself a mammoth task. But like once you've done that, you have to like persuade people to want to use it. You've got to build all of the ecosystem around it, the standard library, you know, the third party software, and so I mean, it's a it's a it's an impossible task. But it's a nice dream, you know, that oh, you know. I'm, I'm going to build my own programming language with blackjack and hookers, you know, like, that. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's a, it's, it's kind of like a, a sort of a never going to happen, but, but that would be nice one day uh, project. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And one thing that we talked about when we last met, which is kind of funny is that, you know, you start looking into building your own language and you think, oh, I'm going to keep it so simple. I'm going to keep it so pure. And it's not going to have all these complexities that other languages has. And then you start thinking, well, maybe I need this feature and maybe I need that feature in order for it to actually be practical. And then after a while, you just end up back with Swift. <laughs> right, absolutely. Back when I was programming in basic, like what I would find is that, you know, I'd start working on my ideal language and slowly it would end up just looking like the language that I was using anyway, right? I think... But particularly because you, I mean, you tend to you tend to start writing your ideal language in whatever your current best language is. So you know, it's kind of like this mirror effect that you know, whenever you're trying to think of a feature or how to solve something, you're like, oh well, my language does it this way. So that you, yeah, you just end up building whatever whatever language you were you were writing to begin with. Yeah, it's really really funny how it turns out that way. <laughs> so uh, when you're not building parsers and interpreters, which we'll talk a lot more about later in the show, uh, you're working at Chipstat. And uh, you're working on some interesting projects there, uh, and you've been kind of working on a bunch of different things. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Like, what's it like working at Chipset, and what do you kind of do there? 
most of the things I've ended up doing at ships that have kind of been meta projects. So, uh, you know, I was I was hired to work on a fairly straightforward application. But, you know, working on applications is, is boring after a while. So I was like, oh, well, you know, rather than working on an application, what if I work on software for working on applications? <laughs> right. <laughs> we need to go one level above. Right. It's always got to be one level deeper. And then, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and then, then you're like, oh, well, you know, why, why would I write this in, in like a boring, like, off-the-shelf programming language when I could write my own. No, but... <laughs> So uh, yeah, so the, I mean, the, the first the first thing I did, uh, kind of like the first meta thing I did uh, at Shipstead was, uh, you know, when I joined, we our code base had kind of quite a quite a, a lot of different styles of, of formatting uh, in the code. Uh, you know, different developers have their own ways of doing things, and and certainly at the time there was very little in the way of like off the shelf uh, formatting tools available for Swift. Yeah. So you know the the kind of code was all over the place in terms of like you know different levels of indent different like ways of wrapping brackets you know every possible thing that could be different while still compiling was different and um i i, I tend to get a bit sort of like uh uncomfortable when we're working on code with multiple different styles in it i'm a, I'm a bit of a sort of perfectionist when it comes to things like that i think a lot of people are yeah it's a, like a little bit of an eyesore right when you're used to like let's say four spaces of indentation or that the uh semicolons or the the curly braces are on a certain level or a certain style and then something is completely off right exactly know, something co looks completely different somewhere yeah and everybody has their own preferred style but like i almost don't mind what the style is as long as it's consistent right yeah you know like the community has kind of like i mean apple has a sort of sort of standard for formatting and and the community's kind of like built up some rules on top of that um ray wendelik has like a good style guide and i think google's got a style guide now and they're all they're all along similar lines it's like you know don't use semicolons um you know use like four space indenting or two space indenting uh, uh use kind of uh k and r style you know brackets rather than um almond style so what i initially did was i just i i i built swift formats to you know automatic uh, automatically apply those styles to our code base and uh, part of the reason was as well that you know in code reviews it becomes a distraction so you know you're reviewing code and you're like uh should i point out this white space thing should i you know like now that we're kind of like agreeing on a style, should we should should we sort of be telling each other, you know, reminding each other to do it this way? And it just seems like a huge waste of everybody's time. Like no, nobody appreciates those comments in a code review. It means you're looking at that rather than what the code is actually doing, which is sort of the purpose of the, the review. So I thought a tool that just did this automatically without you having to think about it was going to be the best way of, of approaching it. Yeah, and that's where you came up with the Swift format, which is a really, really cool tool. And it's interesting because if you compare it to some other developer tools within the same space, it doesn't actually use like SourceKit. It doesn't actually uh, uh, hook into the Swift compiler, but rather it reads the code and kind of applies its own heuristics to it. Uh, which I guess you have some really good reasons for implementing that way. You would think, wouldn't you? Uh, <laughs> so when I wrote this tool, like I, I wasn't really aware of Swift Lint, which is kind of the thing that is most like Swift format in terms of its functionality. Yeah. I did briefly check it out and I, I briefly looked at um, Source Kitten as well, which is the sort of underlying uh, library that powers um, Swift Lint. Yeah. What I sort of found uh, when, when sort of trying out uh, uh, Source Kitten was that the information it was giving me seemed to be sort of missing a lot of the stuff that I would want in order to to, to do formatting. So SourceKit, which um, SourceKitten is a wrapper for, is it's the underlying sort of implementation of the Swift parser. And it's designed for the purpose of 
compiling Swift code, obviously, not for the purpose of formatting it. And those are slightly different tasks. I mean, there's a lot of overlap there. And theoretically, you could you could certainly make a parser that was optimized for both. But um, you know, when you're when you're compiling code, for example, the first thing uh, is you strip out all the white space and comments because you don't care about that. That's not that's not relevant information for the purposes of compiling. But when you're writing a, a, a formatter, you you need to care about all of that. And particularly um, the kind of formatter that I that, that Swift format was intended to be, and and which it still is to some extent, is a, a sort of um, an incremental formatter. So rather than uh, working like a lot of formatters do, where it just converts the code into a into an AST, a, a syntax tree, and then outputs an ideal formatted version of it, uh, Swift format actually leaves a lot of your decisions in place, either because I just haven't gotten around to coming up with rules for that yet, or because, you know, you you, you might sort of uh, feel that its rules are too restrictive in certain things, like, you know, when do you leave a blank line? Do you always have a blank line between functions, or do you only sometimes do it according to sort of esoteric rules that you can't quite put into words? Right, yeah. <laughs> so so Swift, Swift format actually preserves all of the white space in your, uh, in your program, and then only removes or adds white space in certain places. Um, so it needs to preserve all of that information from the original uh, source code when it parses it. And although I think actually now in retrospect, like if I if I dug a bit deeper, there are ways to get um, SourceKit and SourceKitten to do that. It wasn't immediately obvious when I was first looking at it that it that it was a capable of preserving that information. Yeah, that makes sense. Beyond that, you know, uh, part of the reason why I sat down to write this tool was because you know I like parsers, right? So right. <laughs> I mean, I think I was going into this with the idea that like there was going to be an opportunity for me to write a parser, and if I had discovered very early on that that wasn't the case, I don't know if I'd have had the enthusiasm to carry on through it. Did I have a very good reason for, for building my own parser? <laughs> probably not. Like probably not a very good reason. But I have I have enough reasons to justify it to myself for why I did it that way. Yeah, absolutely. But honestly, I think that writing something because you're excited about it or because you want to learn it or you want to just like dig deeper in and understand kind of how things work under the hood, I think is a great reason. I mean, at least that's what I tell myself. And I guess that's why I now also have my own I have my own syntax highlighter, my own game engine and working on my own editor. <laughs> but, you know, these kind of projects are very interesting and it also helps you grow a lot as a developer because, you know, like you mentioned, after a little while when you've built n number of applications, it's not that you feel kind of bored with it, but you feel kind of like, you know, we've done this before, right? And trying to find these projects that can help you in your day-to-day -day work and kind of complement it, but kind of scratches that itch of building something a little bit like deeper or understanding something under the hood can be really, really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Swift Format is not your first foray into open source. In fact, you've been doing open source for a long time, my friend. <laughs> uh, it start, did, it, did you start with iCarousel? Because I think that's the project that I first saw from you, which was some, sometime in like 2011 or something like that. Uh, I think it may have even been earlier than that. It was uh, iCarousel was first written for probably iOS 3. It wasn't even called, it was iPhone OS 3 at the time. Right, yeah, that's that's how old it is. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like... Uh, I'm I'm a gray-haired developer. I'm not, I'm not actually I'm not actually gray-haired, but when it comes to, when it comes to iOS, I've been there from since like way 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 back at the beginning. iCarousel wasn't even my first open source. Like I, I was writing open source for Real Basic, you know, before I even started doing uh, sort of Cocoa and Objective C development. But I think iCarousel was the first time that I actually made something that other people wanted to use. Uh, it was also the first time that I put something on GitHub. 
uh, having previously been using Subversion. So like Git was a bit of a mystery to me. So I think it was a, a combination of building something that actually really solved a problem that a lot of people were having and also like putting it in the right place and, you know, making it visible to the right community. It was also around about sort of that time that I uh, I joined Twitter and started like talking about the stuff that I was doing. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know iCarousel, it's... Uh... It was a pretty like revolutionary project when it came out, and it came out in that era where it w- there wasn't an easy way to do a lot of things that we now take for granted on iOS. For example, there was no collection views, uh, there was no even automatic memory management, there was no auto layout and things like that. And iCarousel enabled you to build, well, carousels, like carousels of content, like, for example, CoverFlow, like UIs, and, uh, and things that scroll kind of uh, horizontally across the screen. I remember that was a, like a really popular project for implementing these kind of UIs, which wasn't trivial back then. Yeah, so the, the thing was like Apple did this slightly strange thing when um, iOS first came out that they had this cover flow um, style. It was really, really popular back then um, of, you know, this kind of like flip book, um, horizontal flip book of, of, you know, whatever, images, yeah. album covers. And uh, every app wanted to use this style because this seemed like, you know, the way of making your app look cool and Apple sort of, you know, native. It's kind of like the touched based or the gesture based UIs of the time, right? Now everyone right. wants to build these gesture based fluid interfaces. That was kind of that, but at that time. Exactly. And, uh, you know, now like uh, nobody uses CoverFlow anymore. It's kind of like, you know, the old, old fashioned way of doing things. Apple has been slowly removing it from all of their products. But, you know, back in this kind of like hugely sort of skeuomorphic era it was the the hot style and everybody wanted this and yeah there was no there was no built-in framework for it um i don't even know if apple had their own like internal implementation or if they just rebuilt it every time but yeah it wasn't something they made available to developers and there were a few cover flow implementations um around but what i found was that that people who sort of built these tools generally went straight to like opengl they they'd go really low level and they'd build like a 3D, you know, engine using OpenGL and it would render sort of like textures, you know, textured quads to, to make this kind of cover flow effect. Yeah. And, and that's great. But, you know, if, if you want something other than an image on your sort of items in your carousel, then, you know, that, that's too low level. Like it, it's not it's not capable of doing that. And it was around about this time that I sort of started really digging into core animation. And I realized that core animation is is the right tool for this like core animation has the ability to take a, a an ordinary view uh, you know with buttons and and labels and what have you and transform it in 3D on the screen and that this was actually the you know the way that apple must be doing this themselves but it wasn't really very well understood because core animation was you know it was low level but it wasn't it wasn't kind of low level that people were familiar with it was this it was this brand new thing that was unique to apple and so low level coders were reaching for the tools that they knew like opengl and sort of it seemed like people had kind of missed this intermediate layer that was actually the right thing for building the, these kind of uh, interfaces yeah absolutely and that is an excellent segue into our first main topic because we want to start talking about core animation uh, we're also going to talk about layout, building declarative UIs, which you've also been exploring uh, as part of Shipstead. And then finally, we want to talk more about parsing Swift code, building developer tools, and kind of analyzing source code and things like that. Uh, but core animation, great segue, um, because as you mentioned, it is seen usually as a kind of low-level technology. And... Uh, at the same time, I think a lot of people are familiar with it because we all know that uh, a view, for example, on iOS has a layer property and you can use it to set like corner radius and shadows and things like that. But 
I, I feel like a lot of people like don't often dive into core animation, maybe for good reasons, but sometimes there's it's kind of like a hidden gem and there's a lot of things you can do with it. So uh, when you built iCarousel, I think definitely you made uh, the right choice there. Like core animation is a great tool for these kind of like, you know, 3D like UIs when you want to manipulate things and things like that. Um, but what do you think are some of the other kind of use cases for core animation? These days, when do you kind of usually dive down into core animation instead of just sticking with UIKit? I think it's much less common now, uh, partly because uh, sort of post iOS 7, like the style, you know, for apps has changed. Like they don't, they don't make heavy use of these kind of 3D effects and so on anymore. Like you don't really have drop shadows so much anymore. And th that was the kind of thing that core animation was kind of really good for. It was good for doing 3D. It was good for doing drop shadows, stuff that wasn't exposed in UIKit. Yeah. Um, yeah. These days, like, I mean, it's still obviously very useful. Um, it's a very powerful tool. And it's good to know, like, what its capabilities are because, uh, you know, th there's a lot of stuff hidden below the surface of UIKit that is only available via the layer property. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's it's maybe so much of a priority now as, as it was you know, back when we were trying to build these very rich um, UIs. And I, th I think part of that is also down to the fact that Apple has kind of pivoted away from the core animation model a little bit in, in the way that stuff is implemented in, in UIKit. So back in sort of iOS like 1 and 2, everything was based on core animation. So uh, like everything in UIKit is just a wrapper around a core animation concept. The layout model um, which is uh, was at the time like auto resizing. So the idea of you, you had sort of this auto resizing mask where things can have a flexible width and height. Yeah. Um, that's all implemented in core animation and then UIKit wraps around it. Um, the, uh, the animation model is all sort of built inside core animation and then UIKit's view animation methods are all just wrappers around that. So that, that was how everything worked under the hood. And so core animation was a kind of like the next level down. But post iOS 7, what we've seen is that Apple has kind of moved towards more sort of real-time interactive animations. Um, so things where, you know, like things follow your finger as you move around the screen. And almost all UIs are based on collection views and collection views are based on scroll view. And scroll view, again, is based on this real-time animation um, running on the main thread rather than something that you can dispatch for core animation to execute in the background. And I think because of that, um, you know, UI dynamics, again, like a real-time physics engine running on the main thread in UIKit, nothing to do with core animation, totally disconnected from it. Yeah. Increasingly, then, we're seeing, you know, animations that have to be done in UIKit can't really take advantage of core animation's um, sort of methodology for doing this stuff. And we sometimes see a lot of clashes as well, where if you want to implement, for example, one gesture-driven animation, and then you also want to have a, like a linear animation in there, you can sometimes end up with these kind of tricky situations where sometimes something is animating. And the way core animation works is that it, like you, yeah, like you also hinted at there, is that it doesn't actually animate in the main thread. It doesn't even animate in your process. It actually does all its rendering out of process. And this is also how we can achieve such good performance. Uh, but you can end up with these interesting conflicts there because in core animation you have like the representation layer and you have the model layer and sometimes those can end up out of sync and if you have something like a gesture driven UI you can end up with something like you know the, the view is not exactly where you thought it would be and then you end up with some kind of conflict. Right, and this was the thing that was always confusing about core animation if you didn't like have a deep understanding of, of, of how it worked that what you set and what you did in your app 
uh, and what you saw on the screen w- were disconnected because of this this sort of core animation model and presentation layer. Exactly. So, uh, you know, to, to to trigger an animation in core animation effectively, I mean, UIKit kind of has some uh, abstractions around this, but basically, you say, "I want my view to be here after this time with this animation." Um, and then as far as your app is concerned, the view is already there because you've set its position. So that's where it is. But behind the scenes, core animation you know, dispatches uh, onto, onto this other process that's running in backboard. It's, um, originally, it was the same, the same process that uh, the uh, Iowa Springboard was rendered in. It then actually does the work of doing all that interpolation, moving the, uh, the polygons around the screen that actually represent your, your views. Um, and so as far as your app is concerned, your view is already there. But core animation knows that it's actually still in transit and will get there after 0.4 seconds or however long your animation was set to be. So then, it, as you say, if you're trying to do real-time stuff, you know, if you want to then like st- touch that view to stop it from moving and then actually move it somewhere else, uh, you have a problem because your app doesn't really know where that view is. Um, and there is this, this kind of uh, virtual presentation layer where your app can say, to core animation, okay, where is this view actually? <laughs> right. But you have to know you you have to know that that's there, and it's it's not. I mean, even that is kind of uh, an abstraction. Like your app really doesn't have access to that information. All it's doing is it's it's basically saying like based on how we know core animation works, like where would this view be now? But you know, as far as the as far as the app is concerned, it only has access to the model. Uh, the presentation stuff is all running in a different process. Yeah, and it always felt like a little bit of a hack to do something like that because you're kind of looking into the implementation details of core animation at that point. Uh, it was really useful to look at the, the presentation layer, but it always kind of felt out of place. And uh, one other thing that I know that a lot of developers, including myself, uh, you know, always stumble upon when, when starting to use core animation was the fact that, that like you said, you you are setting the the property that you want to animate to the end state. So you would basically say, for example, if you want to move uh, a, a view from, let's say, position 50 to 25, you would set the property to 25, and then you would add an animation on top of that, because otherwise you would, core animation would run your animation, but then your app would still have the old position as the property, so we'll just jump back, right? And this is something I think everyone kind of goes through when learning, and it just again shows that you have a very different model here when in, in terms of dealing with animations. Right, and that, that's why UIKit originally had this kind of friendlier wrapper with the UI view animation stuff around core animation, because core animation's way of working is quite sort of unintuitive. Uh, its idea is that basically everything is an animation, yeah. and that you trigger animations by just setting properties. Whereas in, in UIKit, it kind of it wraps that into a sort of more uh, intuitive system where if you set something, you move it immediately, but if you set it inside the context of an animation, then that's when the animation is applied. And really, it's actually having to override what core animation wants to do naturally in order to make that happen. Because you know, normally in core animation, if you set if you set something's position, it will animate by default. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a different model. And and UI UI view does some really weird stuff with the sort of the core animation layer delegate to kind of you know like override actions and and sort of make it so that core animation doesn't behave the way it wants to behave naturally which again is something that uh, becomes very confusing if you try and you know like customize things if you try and uh, add your own animations at a lower level yeah exactly and i had to do the same for imagine engine my game engine which is written right on top of core animation just like ui kit is and uh, i also had to disable the actions because like you say uh core animation defaults to always animating everything so if you set a property on a layer it will 
implicitly animate that. And then you need to Im either implement a delegate method or, or a subclass to say, actually, I don't want any action for this change. I want to return nil or, or, a, or a void action to, to disable the animation, which again, just kind of shows just how rooted um, core animation is in actually animating everything. Yeah. But there are some really interesting things that you can do with core animation that do not actually relate to animations. And I gave a talk earlier this year called Beyond Animations with Core Animation, which was just looking at some of those kind of hidden gems. And one thing that I love to use core animation for is, uh, for example, gradients. You can very easily uh, add a gradient using the CA gradient layer. Uh, you've got CA shape layer, which is a very nice tool to draw shapes, like custom shapes, in a very performant manner. Because for example, if you override draw rect on a UI view and you draw using core graphics, you're actually drawing in your own process in software. Uh, but if you instead use uh, a CA shape layer in core animation, you get you can take advantage of that out of process rendering and end up usually with, with much, uh, much better performance. And these kind of things are super useful, I think, for drawing things like uh, custom shapes and icons and also like charts and things like that. Right. And as you say, these things are not particularly well known. Like I remember going to a conference and somebody gave a talk that was basically entirely just, um, hey, I made this cool chart in my app and nobody knew how I did it. And I did it using CA Shape Layer. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah. You know, and like an entire talk, which is basically just, hey, I found this API. <laughs> it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And coordination is filled of this stuff. You also got like replicator layers, which is also like a pretty, pretty crazy concept that you can take a certain layer and apply a transform to multiple instances of it and have it like being replicated. Uh, so there are many of these kind of things that have built up over time. I guess it's one of these things where, you know, at some point it was really useful and someone thought, let's just build that into the framework. Right. I mean, so CA replicator layer, for example, like one of the, one of the things I added to iCarousel was... Uh, Again, back in the skeuomorphic days, if you can cast your mind back to how things were then. Uh-huh. Back to the green felt and the leather stitching and these kind of things. <laughs> right. And, and and the mirrored floor. So your your carousel would be sitting on a mirrored floor. And oh, in, yeah. that, in that floor you'd expect to see reflections of all of your views, right? Uh -huh. And again, that's that's fine if it's images, like you can you can kind of hack that. But if it's a view with buttons and things that's like dynamically being generated, that's kind of tricky. So I, I used CA replicator layer to build a mirror. So you would you would replicate whatever view was in your carousel and you'd flip it and then apply a, a, a mask layer, another nice feature of uh, core animation. Uh, I think that's now available in UI view, but it wasn't back then. Right. So yeah. then, you, then you could apply a gradient mask, which would then make it fade out nicely. And that, again, that was a really cool effect and fast because uh, it's all done on the GPU. Yeah, it's super cool stuff. I, I really encourage everyone like who's an iOS developer to at least like if you haven't explored core animation to start just looking into it. Like we mentioned, it can be a bit intimidating at first, but uh, it's really powerful and you can do some really cool stuff with it. So yeah, once I started kind of looking into it and get, getting over that kind of barrier of entry, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun just to explore core animation because it's such a rich API. But we mentioned earlier that uh, Apple, it feels like they're kind of maybe not moving away from core animation, but they're definitely like implementing things in a different layer. Like they're not usually modifying core animation. Core animation hasn't seen a lot of kind of, you know, new changes in the last couple of years. Uh, in the last iteration of Swift, we did get like a new more Swifty API, which is very nice. So core animation is now like it is more better annotated for Swift. Uh, but Nick, what do you think is kind of like the future of core animation, if we should speculate a little bit? Do you think that Apple will continue like basing their platforms on, on core animation? Or do you think that they might move on to something else? So uh, I don't have any insider information on this. But uh, 
my my instinct is that they're going to move away from core animation. Uh, there's a there's a few reasons for that. So I, I think we first started seeing this happening uh, around about iOS six when um, Auto Layout came in, and I thought it was very strange at the time, uh, although I, I understand it in retrospect that Auto Layout, you know, as I said before, uh, Auto Resizing was implemented in Core Animation. That was Core Animation's layout model. And auto layout was implemented directly in UIKit. And it seems particularly bizarre because auto layout was uh, implemented in both Mac and iOS. So they effectively had to replicate the implementation. I'm sure it shares a lot of logic, but uh, you know, instead of you know, core animation is common to Mac and uh, to AppKit and uh, uh, UIKit. So it's it's the it's the thing they have in common. If you work with core animation, you've got sort of cross-platform um, built in. But uh, auto layout, which is also common to both platforms, is implemented in the layer above. So it's basically They've done it twice. And it seemed strange to me that that wasn't done at the layer of core, of core animation. But then when iOS 7 came out and they moved towards these kind of uh, more sort of fluid, real-time, interactive animations, it all started to make sense because you know the, the, the UI dynamics and, and all of these, these new APIs that exist in UIKit are based around this real-time interaction model. Yeah. And although core animation sort of could be made to do that, that's not kind of how it was invented like it, it wasn't the purpose for which it was designed yeah and so it's kind of it's kind of trying to force a square peg into a round hole to make core animation work that way force a square shape layer into a round layer <laughs> yeah I, I don't think the, uh, the it's going to break down yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, the other thing you have to remember is the context in which core animation was created is like uh, you know the first iphone was actually a very slow device uh, i mean you know by the standards of the day it was great but but like it's you know, maybe like a thousand times slower than the iPhones we have now. Yeah, just look at those graphs that Apple always show, you know, at the keynote <laughs> where you see like the, the iPhone performance. And if you look at the original one, like you can't can't almost see the bar anymore. You know, right, it's exactly. such a small it's, bar. It's, yeah, it's like a pixel high against, right. this, against this screen high bar. Yeah. And it was a sort of single processor device. Uh, it didn't even have uh, GCD. Like GCD wasn't available in iOS 2. I don't, th- don't think that came in until iOS 4. So... At the time, like developers were not good at doing threading. Like threading was hard, and we, we generally just didn't bother. Everything was done on the main thread, and it was a single CPU. Um, and so, you know, you'd be doing stuff like I/O on the main thread. Yeah, you'd be doing like you know core graphics drawing on the main thread, and we didn't think anything of it. Like you just you know you you do that, and it would be fine. And the reason it was fine was because of core animation. So core animation was doing all of your animations on this high priority background thread that Apple managed. Um, and so, however, like you could you could block the main thread for like a second, and you could still be like looking at a smooth transition happening during that time. Yeah, and and that was amazing. Like uh, that's why the iPhone felt so fluid because of that capability. But you know, you, you fast forward to iOS sort of seven, and a couple of things have changed. One, like everything's a, uh, a UI collection view, so it's all real time scrolling, real time interaction. And so, if you block the main thread, you're going to get stuttery scrolling, which is the kiss of death for your app experience. And so core animation really doesn't help you there. I mean, it never has with scroll views. They always had to be high performance. But when everything is a scroll view, you know, that 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 advantage is lost. And the other thing is that your your phones are much, much faster now. They've got like, you know, dual core or quad core processors, um, you know, super fast GPUs and CPUs. Uh, and so the necessity of of doing all of this in a in a background process is maybe not quite so high as it was in the original iPhone design. But then meanwhile, the complexity, you know, the things we talked about before of having to manage this this kind of disconnect between the model and the presentation and like trying to work out where your views actually are and cancel things that have been scheduled to run in a different process, that burden becomes proportionally higher relative to the advantage. Um, so 
my guess, and again, this is not this is not uh, based on any insider knowledge, but my guess would just be that like Apple is kind of done with that now. Like that's that you know that was a, that was a really good solution to the performance problems they had at the time, but now it's probably more trouble than it's worth to keep going down that route. And I think we're going to see less and less stuff happening in core animation and like more and more UI paradigms just being implemented in the layer above or perhaps whatever might replace it. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense uh, because also the kind of UI models of the Mac and iOS have kind of moved a little bit away from each other. I guess now it's kind of coming back with things like Marzipan where we can soon run UI kit apps on the Mac. Uh, but in general, iOS has kind of gone this route of these fluid gesture-driven UIs, which makes sense for a touchscreen. But on the Mac, we still have these more static UIs, you know, more c- controlled by you know, mouse and keyboard and things like that. So for those kind of tasks, core animation is still really great. But like we also mentioned, it's not, a, it's not a perfect fit. That model is not a perfect fit for a gesture-driven UI. So yeah, I also think it makes sense that Apple might be separating the implementations a little bit, building more specific ones for touchscreens, for TV, for watch, for, uh, for computers. Uh, and maybe we'll see another kind of different layer of abstraction uh, coming as we get Marzipan and as that kind of matures. Maybe we'll, the, the platforms will continue coming back again to some similar model we'll see yeah so i mean so that now this is somewhere where i do have uh, some potential insider information i can't i can't give up my sources but a, li- a little bird has told me oh a little birdie i like little birdies <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, so a little bird has told me that that marzipan is indeed part of a, a sort of a, a strategy a two-step strategy of bringing uh sort of ui kit and app kit together so step one is ui kit on the mac and then step two is potentially we're going to see a, a sort of a Swift-based, uh, more declarative, more uh, more modern layer on top of that that will then be available to both iOS and Mac developers. So I, I'm really excited about that because um, you know I, I love UIKit. I, I've been doing UIKit for for ten years now, but it's just not a very good fit for Swift. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't feel right when you're trying to write Swift applications on top of UIKit. You've got like force unwrapping everywhere and uh, lots of dynamism. Like everything has to be an at obj C annotated property because otherwise, you know, interface builder can't see it. It just doesn't, it's not not quite the right thing for Swift. So I'm, I'm really excited to see uh, like what Apple might be working on uh, as a replacement for that. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, also with Swift, we're kind of seeing a move kind of away from the subclassing model and the kind of really strong object-oriented programming focus and instead looking more at kind of modern uh, patterns such as, for example, you know, functional programming. I know that's been around for ages, but, you know, the, a modern iteration <laughs> of it. Uh, and also with like declarative programming and these kind of things. And you've got stuff like Rx Swift and observables and all these things that could be like the UI kit or, or the thing that replaces it could be more geared towards those kind of styles of programming. And uh, you, again, are making a really awesome segue <laughs> because uh, that's uh, you, you should become a professional podcaster, Nick. It's, uh, you're, you're great at this stuff. Uh, because the next thing we want to talk about is declarative UIs. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank a brand new sponsor, which I am really excited about. And it's my good friends at Amazon Web Services. 
Now, you might already have used some of Amazon's really popular and powerful backend tools, such as S3 for storage or EC2 for running custom servers, but they also have amazingly powerful tools for iOS apps as well, in particular, AppSync and Amplify. AWS AppSync lets you easily add fast and powerful cloud syncing to your app. Say you're building an app that needs a backend database or a multiplayer game, or maybe it has some real-time collaboration features, or maybe you just want to quickly sync data between devices. AppSync lets you do all of that, but that's just the beginning. You see, AppSync is backed by GraphQL, which both lets you easily customize exactly what data you want to load and save in the cloud, but it also lets you build custom logic that gets run on Amazon's backend. This is so much more than a simple sync solution or a database SDK. It's a complete solution for a backend for your app without having to maintain any server-side code. And then you have Amplify, which is a suite of command line tools that takes working with GraphQL and Swift to a whole new level. Amplify will generate Swift code for you based on your server-side data and your queries, so you no longer have to type requests manually, set up URL configurations, or deal with networking, or any of that stuff. After setting up AppSync, you just run the Amplify command line tool, and it gives you native Swift code that you can use directly to load and save data in the cloud. How cool isn't that? So with AppSync and Amplify from Amazon Web Services, you can easily add powerful backend features to your app without having to maintain any server infrastructure. Better leave that to Amazon if you ask me. You can save and store data in the cloud, and it all works completely offline, it's cross-platform, they handle all sorts of conflicts, and it all happens in real time. Seriously, this is super powerful stuff, but still very, very easy to set up and use natively in Swift. So check out AWS AppSync and Amplify today and see how you can take advantage of Amazon's powerful developer tools to build your app. Go to aws.amazon.com appsync to find out more and to get started. They also have a resources page there, which is full of guides and tutorials. So once again, that's aws.amazon.com appsync to get started with AppSync and Amplify. Thank you so much to Amazon Web Services for sponsoring Swift by Sundell, which helped make this episode possible. All right, so about declarative UIs. I think it's a really, really nice model for building UIs, and we've both been exploring this. You've built a layout framework uh, as part of Shipstead, and uh, I was working a lot with declarative UIs at Spotify. So can you expand a little bit more on this idea? Like, what is it about kind of declarative UIs that... Uh, that you like and where would you kind of like to see UIKit go in this regard? So uh, as you may know, bef before Shipstead, I was working at Facebook on the React Native um, project, which was a, a little bit of an odd fit for me in some ways, for people who know me, because uh, it involved uh, a lot of JavaScript, which uh, I'm not a huge fan of, although in, in a former life, I was a web developer. Uh, and so I don't love everything about React Native, I've got to say. I mean, I, I, I think it's it's got some very strong ideas uh, and it's it's a really good solution for you know certain types of uh, developer or certain types of product where you want you know you want to focus on cross platform maybe you ex have an existing website but it's not the right thing for me like it's not something that I actually want to use myself uh, and the reason for that is because it's rooted in this old world of like uh, you know sort of dynamic uh, programming with like weekly typed everything uh, everything's checked at runtime everything fails at runtime yeah. The whole the the native implementation of React Native is all Objective C. 
you know, we started writing that before Swift was really a thing. And even if, you know, we had like gone the route of Swift, which would not have been the right choice at the time, uh, you know, Swift just doesn't work that way. It's all about like real time binding, you know, to properties uh, that you only find out about at runtime. So it's 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 very much based around that sort of like way of working. And uh, that you know, now that I've I've sort of like been been working with Swift for a couple of years, that really doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel like the way I want to be doing things. And so there was a lot of nice things about React Native. Like one thing that's really really nice is the uh, declarative UI that that is really part of React. Uh, it's the you know the, the React part of React Native, um, which feels like a much better way of defining user interfaces uh, than the kind of uh, mutable tree model that UIKit is based on. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I really liked about it was uh, the live reloading feature, which is uh, amazingly good for productivity. So, you know, for when we're doing like uh, UIKit apps, we have Interface Builder or, you know, like you have Interface Builder if you use Interface Builder, which I know a lot of developers don't. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, that sort of tries to give you this WYSIWYG uh, real time, you know, UI designing thing. But it kind of breaks down because if you're trying to build anything like uh, a collection view, which like most of your app is now. You, you don't get that real-time feedback because that's all going to be data-driven. And so you can only see what it actually looks like when you run the app, uh, which means a compile cycle, which, of course, in Swift is slow because Swift is slow to compile. Um, so that, that that's a real productivity killer. And uh, React Native has this amazing feature where you just, you know, you're looking at your UI, you make a change in your code, and you, you do, like, Command R in the simulator, and you see it immediately. Uh, you know, you don't even have to leave the screen that you're on. Yeah. And so I really wanted something like that, you know, uh, after I after built Swift Format at... Uh, uh, Shipstead, that the next thing I wanted was like, let's have some of the tools that I'm used to working with again. Uh, and and what I really wanted more than anything was uh, like real time, uh, you know, hot reloading. Yeah, because you want to see what the UI looks like in context, right? You, like you mentioned, like with, with collection views and you want to see the data that they get populated with. But you also want to see like the result of running your own logic on top of that as well. Because even if you use interface builder or storyboards, it's very rare that that's all there is to it, right? There's always a, a lot of other logic, like manipulating the the styles, or you might have some theming going on and things like that. And of course, you can you can do a lot of these things with like IB inspectable and these things. But you know, usually it's there's a big difference between what you see in Interface Builder or Storyboard and what you see running when the app is actually running. Yeah, exactly. And and there's really no substitute for just you know seeing your changes showing up immediately in the app as you're working on it. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, as I said, I wanted I wanted sort of like to to see if I could replicate uh, the sort of declarative layout of React, but with native code. And also, uh, I've got to say, I'm I'm not a huge fan of auto layout. Uh, I, I never have been. Um, and I mean, partly it's I guess it's probably my sort of not invented here syndrome. Like you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I knew how the old thing worked, and that was fine. Why did you have to go and change it? Uh, and like, right, get off if, my lawn, auto layouts. Yeah, and if, if I'm if I'm going to learn a new thing, it might as well be a thing that I wrote, so that like, <laughs> yeah, I'll, exactly. I'll never have to learn somebody else's like rubbish thing again. So yeah, there, there's probably an element of that, I'm sure. And also, like uh, I, I'm old, so you know, auto layout when it first came out was not as good as auto layout is now. Um, they've they've certainly improved things with sort of the anchor based API and so on, but like when it first shipped, it was pretty hard work. Yeah. The thing I didn't like about Auto Layout was that it's kind of it's infinitely flexible. It can do anything, but uh, it's it's very verbose if you're trying to do simple things. So uh, you know, there's this principle: simple things should be simple, complex things should be possible. So with Auto Layout, everything's possible, but even simple things involve quite a lot of code or quite you know you have to specify every single thing, even if that should really be the default. 
So I wanted I wanted a system that would kind of give you something more along the lines of like make good assumptions, like d- good good defaults, and then like when you want to do something different, you can override that. Uh, so uh, my uh, the, the tool that I created for Shibstead, which is called Layout, kind of encapsulates those three things. It has what I consider to be a, a simpler to understand layout model, um, and uh, it also takes some ideas from React in terms of declarative layout, uh, and it's got this hot reloading feature. Yeah, that's really really cool, and uh, it uses XML to define UIs, which I found kind of fascinating when that came out because. There's been a lot of tools. I built one called the Hub Framework at Spotify, and there's been several tools similar to it that were all using JSON to define uh, UIs. Like, for example, you could have uh, like an array of components, and each component would have like a JSON definition, and you would have things like title, subtitle, image, and things like that, and that would then map to a native view in a collection view. Uh, but you instead, you were using XML, which I found really fascinating, and I think actually it might even be a better choice because XML, and this is something I've come to realize more and more as I'm kind of working on my website and I'm doing some web development, is that HTML, just HTML or XML, like this kind of way of defining a hierarchy is really, really nice because you can end up with a very semantic representation of a structure or of a UI or of like a hierarchy. And uh, I guess that, 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 that was part of the reason why you went with this format. Obviously, I'm not the first person to think that XML would be a good way of describing UIs. Uh, obviously, we, 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 have, we have HTML, which actually predates XML. Right. <laughs> um, so HTML was kind of like the original uh, sort of UI declarative description language, if you like. And React uses something called JSX, which is um, XML embedded in JavaScript. Uh, and basically what this is, is it's, it just uses uh, XML as kind of a... a like a, a meta way of describing class hierarchies in, in JavaScript. So your XML nodes map to just a, a normal class constructor with with children and properties. Yeah. So XML has a terrible reputation generally in the developer community. Like people hate XML. And the reason for that is because uh, one set, when, you, when XML came in, like sometime back in the 90s, um, like everybody went crazy for it. They were like, oh, XML for everything. XML for, you know, like configuration files, XML for data interchange, XML for like, you know, class descriptions, like XML for programming. You've got XSLT, which is like a programming language built in XML. And like, right. it's like XML everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, people got sort of XML fatigue, I think. And I think that this was all wrong, right? Because, uh, you know, like different languages are suited to different things. And XML is not a data format. XML is a document format. Right, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, a document is a thing that has like, uh, nested nodes, like so, you know, parents and children, and attributes. So there is a difference between an attribute and a child. Uh, you know, like uh, in in a in a view hierarchy, your views have properties like their color and you know their 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 size, and they also have children, you know, subviews, and those are different things. Those are distinct concepts. And XML is great because it has a different like paradigm for those two different things. It has a different way of describing children from describing attributes. Whereas JSON is a data format, and JSON makes no distinction between children and attributes. In JSON, you just have like objects. Objects have properties, and those properties might also be objects, which also have properties. So it is hierarchical, but it's a different kind of hierarchical. It doesn't have a distinction between this is a child and this is a property. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why like XML just ends up being a better way of describing these things which have this structure of you know parents and children. 
and, and why it's a terrible data interchange format. Because when you're trying to work out how to represent data in your XML, you're like, oh, well, should this be a child or should it be an attribute? Right. And there, there's no right answer because, you know, data doesn't have the same concept. So JSON ends up being horrible for describing children because you end up having to have like an attribute, which is the children, which is always arbitrary. So it's like you have a children property, which is in an array, and that's kind of awkward. And then it's like, what if you have a property that's called children as well? So yeah, it, it, it gets, gets messy. But yeah, basically, that's why I went with XML. And the reason I went with XML rather than like something like JSX. So what, you know, why isn't why isn't the top level of layout a programming language with nested declarative structures in it, which is what React does? Uh, that was kind of another way in which I felt like React did the wrong thing. So React's uh, basic uh, concept, if you're if you're not familiar with it, is that uh, it's built up of nodes, and every node has a has a render method, which is a function that returns its children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's basically its concept. So like every time every time you update the screen on React. You know, the, the, the parent renders its children, and it does that using a function. And uh, JavaScript is not a functional language. It's not a sort of statically uh, analyzable language. So really, you have no idea what that function is going to produce in advance of calling it. Yeah. So what, what it does is it, it, it does it the other way around. It calls the function and sees what it gets. And then it compares what it got to what it got last time. And it has this diffing algorithm where it says, okay, well, if I got the same number of views and they have the same properties, then nothing has changed. So I don't need to re-render the screen. But if I've got like a new view at the end, well, then I need to do some kind of like insertion and removal logic. Uh, and it's very, very clever. But it, it, it inherently means that certain kinds of view are a lot of work for it to do and they're very slow. Yeah. And one of the things that it turned out to be very slow at was, was rendering very long lists of stuff, which unfortunately is what most iOS UIs are made of. Yeah, because we're dealing with a problem that is at the very best a linear problem, right? right. But usually like a n squared problem. Uh, and then you've got like really clever algorithms such as the one in IG list kit from, uh, from Instagram, which, you know, really kind of takes a lot of fast paths. Uh, but it is a very complex problem to diff like two sets of data or even two, in this case, two sets of hierarchies against each other. Yeah. And, and so React takes some shortcuts, uh, basically, because that's expensive and it doesn't want to be doing it all the time. And again, those shortcuts, unfortunately, are optimized to the common case of a view that doesn't change very much. Right. But when you have a very long list of stuff where, again, it probably doesn't change very much. But when it does change, that's going to be a very expensive change. Uh, it doesn't handle that very well. And I mean, lots of lots of improvements have been made to React and React Native and, and people have built things similar to kind of IG list kit to try and like solve these problems. But again, you're fighting the paradigm. It's not, you know, the paradigm was not designed for this use case. Yeah. And when I started sort of thinking about what React is trying to solve, it seemed to me that it's it's trying to come up with a general solution where actually several specific solutions would be more appropriate. So its general solution is, okay, every time something happens in your app, something on the screen may change. So what we'll do is we'll re-render the whole screen and we'll we'll only update the bits that have changed. And it's very, I mean, it's a very clever model in terms of avoiding things being forgotten. Uh, it's much better than the, the standard model we use, which is everything's mutable. And when you change something, it's your job to update it. And if you forget, then it just like, gets right. left, left unchanged. And <laughs> yeah. slowly over time, those, those, those errors build up in your UI and you have stuff out of sync and, you know, it's... You've got like seven likes on this on this copy of your avatar, but the other avatar says you've only got six. Like that's a common thing. Yeah. React avoids that problem for the most part, but it does it in a very expensive way. So my my sort of take on this was well, actually, most UIs are very static. Uh, so you know, typically on your screen, almost nothing changes. You know, you're, you're not going to be adding and removing views most of the time. 
what you're going to be doing is changing stuff like, you know, the, the number on your avatar. Uh, that, and that doesn't require you to change the view hierarchy at all. That's that's the data of a particular view has changed, but the hierarchy remains static. Mm -hmm. So instead of having uh, a programming language which can produce, like, uh, you know, every time you call render, it could produce potentially a completely different view hierarchy, which you then got to compare to your previous run. What if instead the view hierarchy is actually completely static? So it's defined in XML and it, it can't be changed at runtime. It's, it is set, it's fixed. That's actually going to work fine for most screens. Like most screens, you load your view hierarchy and you never change it. You can change the text in your text box. You can change you know, the color of your alert like icon or whatever, but you're not actually going to need to add and remove views very much. And then in the cases where you do need to handle that, they can be special cased. So uh, if you have a table view, that's going to have a data source and, and that can be implemented using UI table view. Uh, we already have a pattern for doing that. It works very well. Uh, and so that doesn't need to be defined inside your XML. That can be done a different way. Uh, and then similarly, if you have something like you need to present an alert or a new screen, iOS already has ways of doing that, that, that don't have to be replicated in this layout system. So if I focus on the layout system just handling the thing that it's really good for, which is a comp potentially very complicated but static layout, um, then everything else can be implemented on top of that using paradigms that we already have. I think the, the key point here that you hit on, uh, for me at least, is uh, you would rather go with multiple specialized solutions rather than one generalized one. And I think that this is something that a lot of programmers realize eventually. <laughs> you know, this is like a big eureka moment in your career where you kind of stop chasing silver bullets and, you know, Earlier in my career, when I would discover a tool that I really liked, like a pattern I liked or, or something like that, I would just want to use it everywhere. You know, I kind of have the XML syndrome of, of, of the day where, you know, let's just use it everywhere. Let's, let's take this thing which I really enjoy working with, this pattern or this technique or design pattern, what, whatever it might be. But, you know, eventually you realize that a tool doesn't have to solve all problems in order to be great. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If a tool is very specific and solves one specific use case really well, that's usually better because that way it's easier to maintain because you have a very specific use case for it. And also it can be really good at that. Like it doesn't have to, you know, generalize this much. And, and like you mentioned, like if you have a render method that can return anything, you have to be prepared for everything or anything. And if you rather have something a bit more predictable, you can really optimize for that specific use case. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this ties into another one of those great truisms in, in sort of computer science that, that composition is always better than sort of trying to, uh, you know, expand an existing solution to handle more use cases. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you want to do something complicated, the best way to do it is to have, um, you know, simple solutions for all of the individual parts. And then you have like a, a wrapper that calls those rather than trying to build some ever-increasingly more complex solution that handles all of your use cases and keeps on having to have extra if statements and special cases and so on, uh, you know, built up over time. And it's one of those things where, you know, we have all of these principles that we talk about, like dry, you know, don't repeat yourself. Uh, and it's easy to misinterpret those, you know, uh, I think that's a good principle. But you can easily interpret that as, okay, if I have a function to do something, I must always reuse that function for everything that looks even vaguely like the same problem. Right, exactly. And I'll just keep making that function more and more and more complicated uh, and, until eventually I don't understand how it works anymore or it has millions of bugs in it because I can't possibly test all of its its pathways. And 15 different arguments and 100 if statements and yeah. And and this is a fractal thing as well. Like I think this happens at every level of software engineering. Um, I... Uh, I, I, 
tweeted recently about this problem that that like all software um you know eventually gets ruined not because it's uh sort of um neglected but because people kind of try and make it more useful by adding more and more stuff to it until eventually you know you can no longer find the thing that you were originally using it for it's lost in this sea of features yeah uh and you know it it, it happens at the level of applications and it happens at the level of individual functions it kind of happens all the way through your software you know every every function every class every module every library every app has this problem that it just eventually explodes in complexity and becomes unmaintainable and most new things that people you know create in software are not new ideas or new solutions they're just uh trying to replicate the simplicity of a thing they used to like, which is now too complicated to use. Right, yeah, that's a really good point. And I think the big challenge is just defining the boundaries. Like, where do you want to stop? Like, where do you say, this is a problem that we don't want to deal with, or this is a problem that we don't intend for this tool to solve? It's really, really hard in practice. And one concrete example that I have, which I've learned a ton from, is building Unbox, which uh, is a JSON framework that I, I wrote originally for Swift 1 to make you know JSON parsing easier. And the whole kind of selling point of Unbox was that you can always, regardless of what you want to uh, unbox, regardless of what you want to decode, you could always just say unbox and a key. And that way you could you know decode a date, a string, an integer, and Unbox would just figure it out for you. And I think this, this was kind of a blessing and a curse because since everyone was kind of expecting that regardless of what I want to decode, I can always just call unbox. But that meant that you would end up with these really special corner cases where you have like an array of an array of, uh, of dictionaries that contain dates, right? And right. then you're expecting to just be able to call unbox on that, which means the framework needs to be able to handle that. And I think this is part of the reason why the library became popular but it's also kind of part of the reason why now I look at it and I'm like, I would probably have done things maybe a bit differently, maybe move things more to plugins and things like that. Uh, but I think it's an, it's an interesting kind of uh, problem. And like you say, all libraries, all software ever written kind of faces this problem. And yeah, absolutely. And this is a thing I've really struggled with in my own open source libraries. Um, there's these two different things which seem to be at odds with each other, which is keeping the complexity of the interface minimal and keeping the complexity of the implementation minimal. Yeah. And often, like, to do one, you're compromising the other. So in your case, you wanted to keep your, your interface as simple as, as possible, just, like, have one method that just does everything, and, you know, the, the end user doesn't have to think about how it works. Um but then that makes your implementation so much more complicated because it's got to handle all of these these cases, which actually, you know, the, the person calling this library could probably do much more simply themselves because for them, it's just a simple, you know, a single specific problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, and they know exactly what the structure is and exactly what the problem is. So they could right. just like hard code for that path. Yeah, but it's not it's not always easy to see how to do that. And sometimes it means building something that on the face of it, is more complicated to use. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, something that is also really hard to plan for because you might look at this problem right now and see, well, this is a problem I can just code for because it's just a single path. But then you end up with, you know, you need all these different configurations, you need all these different use cases for it. And then, you know, that by, by then you should probably take the decision to say, okay, let's abstract this out, maybe make a protocol that people can conform to. Uh, but yeah, seeing that at that point in time can be really tricky. 
All right, really interesting stuff there. And now we want to talk about something maybe even more interesting, at least for us, <laughs> which is uh, parsing Swift code. So uh, recently we've both worked on two different tools that both kind of parse Swift code as it is. So we mentioned earlier that you, Nick, you've been working on Swift formats, and I recently uh, open sourced Splash, which is a syntax highlighter for Swift, for example, for blog posts and things like that. So I thought it would be interesting uh, as this final talk Topic to kind of dive a little bit deeper into what actually goes into parsing Swift code. Because when I started looking at this, I kind of looked at it as this will be something I won't be able to do. Like <laughs> this is way too complex for me. It's way above my head. It's way above my pay grade. <laughs> but when I started actually looking into and kind of uh, breaking the problem down, I kind of realized that it is not that complex and it is actually something I can achieve, which is feels very empowering. And uh, first of all, I want to hear, like, is that how you felt as well, attacking something like Swift format? And, you know, when you wanted to start parsing something like something like as complex as Swift code, where do you kind of start? One thing I would say, like, you know, don't don't be like me. Uh, <laughs> right. If, don't do if, this at home, kids. <laughs> yeah. If, if you want to parse Swift code, by far the best way to do it now is probably to use lib syntax. Apple has two different uh, Swift parsing libraries. Uh, SourceKit is one of them. And that's the one that is used internally for compiling Swift. Uh, but then they've also got libsyntax, which is uh, specifically designed for building tools like formatters. Uh, it's used for, for Swift's refactoring tools. And it is more oriented towards the task of you know, getting access to all the information in the source code uh, and, and manipulating that. Uh, so that's definitely what you should use now. Uh, <laughs> but that isn't what I used uh, because it didn't exist two years ago, right. uh, amongst other reasons. Like I, I might well have written my own anyway, just because I'm me. But um, so parsing, uh, as I mentioned in my talk uh, the other week, uh, generally breaks down into two parts. You've got uh, tokenization, lexing, uh, and then you have the actual parsing part afterwards where you, you arrange those tokens into you know complex structures that define the programming language. And... Uh, I think both Splash and also Swift Format kind of just do the first bit. Yeah. And the first bit, the first bit is not that difficult. Um, and one of the reasons is because Swift uh, is a C-like language, and uh, all C-like languages are pretty similar in terms of uh, the the sort of the tokens that they support. You know, they have string literals, they have numbers, they have identifiers, which you know start with a letter and then have one or more uh, or zero or more letters or numbers after them. Or, or emoji in the case of Swift. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they, they all basically, like, follow the same kind of pattern. They have, like, curly braces and they have, you know, round brace, braces and so on. Yeah. But there's only a fairly small, finite number of tokens, like individual words or punctuation characters that are supported in the language. Yeah, it's quite easy to find the delimiters. Like, how do you split your code up? Right, exactly. And if you're trying to, if you're trying to uh, write, like, a syntax colorer... You know, you probably only really care at that level. It's like, is this thing a keyword or is it uh, an identifier? Is it uh, a piece of punctuation or is it, you know, like something else? Yeah. So you can kind of stop there. And that is a manageable task. Like any anybody can can sit down and, and write that in a reasonable space of time. And it also doesn't change very much. So even, you know, even though Swift has undergone many radical changes over time, the, the base set of kinds of token it supports hasn't changed. You know, they, they add new keywords, but... You know, those new keywords are still the same sort of shape as their old keywords. They're still made up of letters and, you know, it, it's not it's not that kind of fundamental of a change. Yeah, the delimiters don't change that often. Uh, what can change is like the order of things. But you're not so concerned about those when you are writing a syntax highlighter or a formatter. Maybe more with a formatter, but also like more to a limited degree. 
Right. So, so when I initially started Swift Format, the idea was going to be that it would be a very much a sort of surgical tool. So it doesn't need to understand all of the source code. It certainly doesn't need to compile it, but it doesn't even really need to know, like, is this a function or is this a class? All it needs to know is, you know, this is the thing that starts with a curly brace and ends with a curly brace somewhere further down. Yeah. Um, and, and that information alone is enough to do a lot of the things that Swift Format needed to do, like indenting code. Uh, you know, it could pretty much say, okay, if you have a curly brace, there should be a line break after it. Everything after that should be indented by four spaces until you hit another curly brace and then you indent another four spaces. Uh, it, that was kind of the level at which it operates. And it, even now, like, you know, after a couple of years of evolution, it still pretty much works that way. Like I never implemented a full AST. Uh, what I did end up having to do is for some of the rules, uh, like things like removing self, uh, when it's not necessary, I ended up having to have a much better understanding of what was going on in the code, at least on a local scope. Yeah, and so I ended up basically writing what is effectively an AST inside the rule. <laughs> right, <laughs> but but even then, like I mean, each you know each different rule requires a different subset of the AST, and probably even if you sum them all together, that's still less work than a full AST. And also, what's really nice about it is it's quite robust because even though Apple makes changes uh, to Swift, you know most of the rules aren't affected by that at all. So Swift format doesn't, for example, need to know which version of Swift you're using. It can just kind of work it out. Like it, all it cares about is the things that it sees. Yeah. It doesn't need to know like if a certain thing is, is still valid syntax or not because it, it knows how to format it. And it's, it's somebody else's problem whether it will compile. <laughs> right. as, as, long as, as long as Swift format doesn't change code that will compile into code that won't compile, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and it's the exact same with Splash as well. And this is very much by design because when I post a an article and I have some sample code in there, all of those sample code snippets, they don't actually usually compile in of their own because they're using classes from other code snippets or they just like take some, I remove some cruft from them that I don't think is necessary to kind of show the point. And uh, having something that can not have to be aware of those things, it doesn't have to compile the code. It just looks at like, what is there? What are the tokens? And, and how do I, in this case, colorize them or format them? You know, that is a, that can also be a really big advantage. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned in your talk, and I've heard a lot of people talk about this as well, uh, including like uh, Harlan Haskins, for example, who was on the show earlier talking about compilers, that Swift is a very nice language to write this kind of tools in. And I agree. I also think that it's a very nice uh, tool for this and a very nice language uh, for building like parsers and things like that. So I thought it would just be interesting to kind of enumerate why. Like, why do you think that Swift is a nice tool for, for building like parsers and, and formatters in? There's two basic reasons. Uh, one is because of its strings. Um, so Swift gets a lot of flack for having like a, a difficult to use string API. Um, and I think to some extent that's fair. Like I think they could certainly improve the ergonomics of it a bit. But part of the reason why it's difficult to use compared to languages like C is because it, it actually does it right. <laughs> whereas, right exactly. whereas almost all other languages do it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like the typical thing that languages do is they tell you that a string is an array of bytes and you can, you, know, you can get the fifth byte if you want. What they don't tell you is that the fifth byte might be like the second half of an emoji. Right. And that that's completely useless garbage when, 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 when like taken on its own. Um, or they'll tell you that your string is like 10 characters long. But what they don't actually tell you is that one of those characters is part of a four byte, you know, uh, like Unicode symbol. Yeah, a combination character or something like that. And so actually it's only seven characters long. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, so the bytes, so yeah, so Swift just doesn't have that problem at all. Like Swift Swift is very clear what you're talking about. You're talking about 
you know, character clusters, or you're talking about like individual Unicode code points, or you're talking about like UTF-16 code points or whatever, but you have to be explicit about it. And it won't let you just like grab a random index into your string that's going to be pointing at garbage data. So it's very nice uh, for writing a parser in that it takes care of all of that for you. Whereas if you wanted to write a parser in C or something, it might be faster or it might, you know, it might be maybe quicker to set up. But then when you want to do something like write a language that supports emoji and keywords, you're going to have a bad day. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's one good thing about it. The other thing, good thing about it, and probably the more important thing, is uh, Swift's enums are amazing. Um, they're, they're exactly the data structure you want when you're trying to describe tokens, which is kind of like a, a very pivotal part of writing a parser. Yeah. Um, because uh, a token is basically a, uh, you know, it's a short string, but it has, uh, it represents something. Um, so uh, a token representing uh, a string literal um, you know, the, the text of the token is going to be like a starting quote followed by some characters, then maybe like a backslash to escape another internal quote, or maybe a backslash N, which means a, a line break, and then a closing quote somewhere. And so that represents, you know, you, you've got the representation in the source code, which is a, a string, and then you've got the actual value of that, which is the string with all of those escape characters removed. But then if you have something like a numeric literal, the actual value is a number. So the value of every kind of token is a different kind, you know, different sort of thing, and it's token dependent. And if you were going to write that in something like C, you would you would probably use uh, a C union um, and uh, an enum to represent the the type. So you'd have, uh, you know, the, the type is string literal, and here's a union containing like something, but you don't know what it contains because C unions don't have a, you know, they don't have type information. Yeah, or if you would use a language like uh, Objective C, you might use a protocol, but that would just be an NS object, right? It could be anything, and you wouldn't have yeah. the compile time check to make sure that those types match up. Right, exactly. So it ends up all being very, very sort of loose and uh, you know runtime like checked, uh, you know, possibly crashy uh, and and like awkward to work with. Um, I mean, in C, it's especially awkward to work with because dynamic strings are just generally hard to work with in C anyway. Right. <laughs> so um, Swift just kind of removes all of that complexity and just says, here is the perfect data structure for representing a token. Um, you know, you can have a thing which encapsulates both a type and some data, and it can be a different data depending on the type. And that's all still strongly typed and all statically checked. Uh, and that's, that's, that's really nice to work with. And it, it, it's actually really useful at every level of the compiler. Um, yeah. So it's great for the parsing stage, which comes after lexing, and it's even great for like the data structures internally when you're trying to like write the you know back end. It's also really useful that Swift enums can be indirect, right? So they can contain instances of itself. Right, they can be recursive. Yeah, you can build like a recursive nice tree, which you know, for example, an AST is right. It's got even tree in the name. So uh, yeah, I think I, I agree. Like enums are extremely powerful data structures, especially for a problem like this when you want to represent. You want to make like a type safe, correct representation of something that is very loose, which is, you know, it starts with just a string that could be anything. Uh, you want to make sense of that. And enums are great for that. All right. Uh, what do you say? Should we uh, round off this episode with um, answering some questions from the audience? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So we've got the first question here from Shenghua Wu, who wants us to talk a little bit about using auto layout with a storyboard versus in code. So we talked before that you are or used to be at least not a huge fan of auto layout. So how do you feel about this uh, never ending debate of using auto layout in a storyboard versus setting things up in code? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of come full circle with this. So 
I used to be a huge fan of, of Interface Builder uh, back sort of in you know, the iOS 2 era. Um, it worked really, really well for the kind of interfaces you were building back then because interfaces were very much what you see is what you get. So, uh, you know, a view would have a, a rectangular location on the screen. And when you resized the view, it would, you know, potentially stretch or, or, or stay put depending on, on how your layout worked. But all of that could be very uh, precisely replicated in interface builder so what you you know what you saw was what you would get in your your eventual app and auto layout kind of ruined all of that because uh with auto layout the whole concept of a view being a rectangle sort of goes away and instead a view is the the product of a, a function or a mathematical expression even right exactly it's 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 uh it can't be simply rep, you know, represented by just a rectangle. So when you, you know, you drag your views into Interface Builder, you're you're kidding yourself. You're telling yourself like, <laughs> oh, this is what this is what my view is going to look like. But actually, once it applies all the auto layout constraints, the whole thing could just explode and end up upside down. Like it, it might not look nothing like that. Right. And uh, I mean, there are there are tools in Interface Builder to kind of like say, okay, please update the layout to reflect reality and so on. But you know, it can always be out of sync and it's just awkward to work with. And I think it's a it's a sort of a paradigm mismatch like interface builder is just no longer the right tool for representing the concept that that uh, auto layout is trying to uh, sort of implement in terms of how ui works yeah um something like a markup language like html or something would probably be better for that or it could be that there is a good way of doing a ui for it but interface builder as far as i'm concerned is not a good ui for it and it doesn't look like apple is trying to make it like the right thing like they they've made incremental improvements to it to sort of fix certain pain points but they they don't seem to be interested in fundamentally changing the way it works to reflect you know constraint based uh, ui i think also it might just be a product of you know it's hard to change something that people are used to and people have been using now uh, you know interface builder for for years and uh, with storyboards as well um and I agree with you. I think that you end up with this kind of awkward situation where it's supposed to look like your app, but it kind of doesn't, like we talked about earlier as well. And maybe something, you know, a markup language would be cool, I think, as well. But then you also have to write the code, which, you know, then you, then you kind of end up more in, in code land anyway. Um, one thing that could perhaps be like a nice middle ground is something where it's very obvious that what you're looking at is just like a representation of your view hierarchy. You're not looking at the actual visual end product. For example, you could have like an editor where you're just dragging and dropping like different blocks in and they would just show up like, okay, here's this this part of the view hierarchy, here's this part of view hierarchy, but not necessarily trying to make it look like this is the end product. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think what I would like to see is uh, the problem with layout in code is again that you don't have that WYSIWYG anymore. So you've, you've got to go right. through a full compile and run cycle to see what your change was. And it's really hard to visualize, you know, looking at, you know, a hundred odd layout constraints to try to imagine what that would look like. That could be a fun game to play. Right. So, I mean, th there's another problem there, which I guess we touched on a little bit earlier, which is that auto layout is not really very nice, like, API for, for, for writing layouts in. Like, it, it kind of feels like it's a great underlying implementation, but it needs something on top of it. And uh, Apple has improved that a little bit with the anchor-based sort of system for doing stuff. But some people have gone even further. So um, Chris Idoff showed off his his like layout DSL. DSL is a domain-specific language, so that's like a, a an API written in Swift for making auto layout nicer. And there are many, many such DSLs. You know, if you if you Google for auto layout DSL, there's probably like sort of a hundred hits yeah. for, for different people with different takes on this. And and I think I'm not going to like uh, say that any particular one of them is great because I've not used used them at all, but uh, like there are definitely good ideas there. There are definitely things there that are much nicer to use in code. 
All of them, however, still have the problem, which is fundamental to Swift, that you've got to you've got to actually build and run to see what the effect of the change you made was. Yeah. And so I think if Apple does move away from Interface Builder, they need to have some kind of you know live reloading, live preview, maybe something based on playgrounds. I don't know. There's there's got to be a solution there. But I think that is actually the right way to go. I think uh, code based layout with live preview or fast preview. is going to be the right paradigm for this. I think that works much better in an auto layout world than a WYSIWYG tool like Interface Builder does. Yeah, I totally agree. All of that said, Apple is definitely pushing the Interface Builder route. Like Whether they use it internally or not, I couldn't say. But it is certainly the tool that they seem to want developers to use. And if you're doing all your layout in code, you're kind of swimming against the the, the, the stream. Um, and it's not surprising that you're not getting a fantastic user experience from from going that way. Uh, because it, it does feel, it, you know, App, Apple really seems to want you to do this stuff in Interface Builder. And that's kind of what they've optimized for. Yeah. And the thing with Interface Builder also, I can, I can see why Apple is pushing it because it's so nice when you're getting started and you can get so far without re- writing a single line of code. We even had at FrenchKit, there was, a, there was a little competition there at the end where the challenge was to build a button. And when you click the button, it should show an alert. And one team in the competition implemented that completely in a storyboard, you know, without any code at all. And it kind of just goes to show, like, you can get pretty far with storyboards. And I think this is the reason why people really like them. But the reason people don't like them is that last, like, kind of 10% where you end up with a very different view of reality in your code versus what it, you know, looks like in the storyboard. So, yeah, I definitely agree with you that... I think to take things to the next level, you would need like a different approach. You would need something like maybe you write your your code in in a specific editor, and that will you know be be connected to the simulator, and it would hot reload that specific part of the UI and and do those kind of things. Yeah, what I sort of don't like about storyboards, uh, and this is a problem with a lot of kind of tools generally, is that there's no once you commit to using storyboards, it's very difficult to reverse that decision. Like it's it's not there's not like a nice kind of sort of like onion skin of layers of complexity where you can say like, oh, your storyboard is the outer layer. That's the simplest layer. But if that turns out not to be able to do the thing I want, I can just go one layer deeper and just like, you know, use the use the next layer for just the things I need to, but everything else can still be nice and simple. It's always this kind of awkward, like, okay, I'm going to have to go completely from this nice, simple thing that does 90% of what I want to do that last 10%, I'm going to have to go completely in code and do everything in code. Ideally, you would not want something like, you know, progressive disclosure or whatever you want to call it, you know, where you can start out simple and then you can dive deeper, 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 but at a kind of, you know, you have many, many different levels and you can pick the one that kind of suits your problem. Exactly. That's that's how I think things should be designed. That's how I think APIs should work. Yeah. All right. We're going to do one more question. And this one comes from SF Ascari. And uh, SF Ascari wants to know, do you have any idea how Marzipan will handle maximizing stretching and auto layout? So basically how UIKit apps on the Mac will handle things like being able to resize windows and minimize them and, and these kind of things. And we're already starting to see a little bit how this is handled in the apps that Apple have built using this technology, which are now shipping as part of Mojave. Um, but how do you think this, this model in general will kind of translate when we come from a world where things don't tend to resize that way. I mean, people don't have a phone that can resize, but still we have auto layouts, which we've talked about, which kind of needs to handle this anyway. So how do you feel about this, Nick? I don't think there's actually any great mystery here. So it's it's not true that um, phones can't resize. Uh, even from the very beginning, although you know, you've had a fixed size screen and everything tends to be a full screen window, um, 
we've had the ability to rotate from portrait to landscape. And rotating from portrait to landscape is a pretty fundamental resizing of your UI. Right, yeah, that's true. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've been able to handle that even with auto resizing long before we had auto layout pretty well. Uh, and most, uh, admittedly, a lot of iPhone apps don't handle portrait and landscape mode. They t- tend to run in, in portrait. Or even opt out of it, right? Right. But but iPad apps almost always support both uh, modes. Yeah. And on iPad, you've also got to support things like split screen, uh, where, you know, your whole your whole UI can get, like, squashed into half of the screen or into a sidebar. So, you know, a, a well-designed, a well-built iOS app that already works well on an iPad in portrait and landscape mode would just work the same on a Mac. So it's the same problem, really. Um, you know, resizing a window and and rotating the screen from portrait to landscape is the same problem from from a sort of layout point of view. And I'm pretty sure that's how Marzipan will handle it. So, you know, like a, a, a apps will just be built using auto layout constraints. I guess you'll set like a minimum and maximum width for the window, just like you do in, in a, a normal Mac app. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's that's all there is to it. Like you know, auto layout is the same solution that Mac apps use for their layout system. Uh, it's not. It's not like a fundamentally different paradigm. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think that, like you also mentioned, like we are already beyond the point of having to build uh, flexible UIs. This is this is the reality we live in because very few people. I I don't know if any developer ships an app that just runs on a single device. I don't I don't think that's <laughs> even possible. You have all the different like sizes stretching from the iPhone SE uh, all the way up to the the new 10s Max, right? So you have like this huge. Uh, difference in screen sizes already. So, and like you mentioned, you have the iPad, you have rotation, you have all these complexities already. So, usually I don't think it's going to be a problem. And it might just be, you know, with Mac, you could theoretically resize maybe the window smaller to uh, than, than what you might expect. Uh, but you could probably set some constraints or there would probably be an API for saying, uh, you know, this is my minimum size that this interface makes sense in. Um, so I, I don't think it's a problem. And I think this is also a big reason why we're getting Marzipan now, which is, you know, Apple now, they have been laying the foundation for years to be able to handle things like this. And we're now at the point where they could say, you know, this could now actually work. We now have uh, layouts on iOS that that follow these kind of same dynamism as the Mac has had for, for years. I wonder if it's actually more that the uh, the style of apps on iOS and Mac have kind of uh, converged a little. So like, you know, back in the skeuomorphic era, iOS, iOS apps were, were much more sort of colorful and, uh, you know, like had a lot more custom controls and so on than, than Mac apps tended to. And I think now the the difference in, in the standard look of an iOS app and, and, and a Mac app is sufficiently small that you can kind of get away with it now. Yeah. Because I, I think Apple... You know, I mean, Apple long before auto layout. You know, they they had auto resizing on Mac and iOS, so it was it was still capable of doing you know dynamic window sizing even back then. But uh, I think the problem was back then that an iOS app and a Mac app were so dramatically different in terms of like how they looked, how they functioned, and now they've kind of converged a little more. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So uh, that's all the questions for this episode. And we've now also reached the end. So all that remains is me, for me to thank you very much, Nick, for joining me on this show. It was a true pleasure to talk to you and it was a lot of fun. So thanks so much for being my guest. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, where can people find you if you, they want to follow you online, like find your work and things like that? Um, so I'm I'm at Nick Lockwood on Twitter and GitHub. Um, uh, you know, 
pretty much anything that you, you, you want to talk to me about, one of those two venues is going to be the best place. Awesome. Great. And you can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell. And you can find everything about this show and all the weekly Swift articles at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much again to Amazon Web Services for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check out AppSync and Amplify, and links will be in the show notes for all of that stuff. And thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.